Thank you, Mr. McNair, and greetings and welcome to all our guests. Greetings to all our brethren around the world and friends around the world. 2010 is now history, and we can thank God for what He's accomplished this past year through His church and through His servants. And here in Charlotte, as you heard the announcements, we have grown from an average attendance of, in December 2009, to an average attendance in 2010, that is the first three weeks, not including the uh, family weekend, from 164 average in 2009 to an average of 204 in 2010. That's a 24.4% increase in one year. So we're very thankful that God is giving us that growth. And, of course, we've also had six babies born here in 2010 uh, that helps that growth. Well, last weekend, uh, as you heard the announcements, we enjoyed 329 in attendance for the Sabbath with many visitors from all over the country to celebrate the Sabbath in our regional weekend. And it was a very joyful, uplifting weekend. So thank you all for your help, your service, and your participation. Every January, news organizations review the past year for the top ten news stories. A Time magazine lists the top ten for... 50 different categories, including the 10 top crime stories, the uh, top 10 religion stories, the top 10 tweets. Uh, Senator John McCain was the number one tweeter for his comment to Nicole Snooky Poise, agreeing that the health care bill should not impose a 10% tax on tanning. So you uh, have some very interesting top 10 listings. One is uh, also the top 10 oddball stories of 2010. But seriously, what was the top news story for 2010 around the world? And you, I think and most of you would guess what that is. It was the 7.0 magnitude earthquake in Haiti. In Tomorrow's World, January, February 2011 magazine, which uh, was just posted on our website today, Mr. Rod McNair's article, Is There Hope for Haiti? Uh, he writes, on January 12, 2010, the island nation of Haiti was jolted by the worst earthquake in the region in two centuries. The catastrophe caused horrific suffering that defied description. More than 300,000 people perished, with hundreds of thousands injured and more than a million homeless. We thank God that he's protected our brethren there. So prophecy is marching on, and we all need to be alert to Bible prophecy. We need to keep up with Tomorrow's World telecast, the magazine, the website, the News and Prophecy e-zine. You just heard about the announcements, and you can subscribe to that on our website. The beginning of a new calendar year is a good time to start thinking about our lives, the past year's accomplishments, disappointments, and lessons. What lessons have you learned in 2010? Perhaps you can list your own top ten stories for 2010. And we can rejoice in our observance of the Feast of Tabernacles in September. And we can now look forward to the Passover, the night of April 17th, and the Days of Unleavened Bread that follow. But now is a good time to think about our plans and goals for the year ahead of us. So what goals have you set for 2011? What spiritual goals have you set for 2011? What changes do you want to make in your life in 2011? 
So I don't need to make any changes in my life. Well, just ask your wife or your husband, and you might get some help. Or your friend. We need to think. We need to plan ahead for this year. I'll refer you to sermon number 568, Spiritual Goals, which was given the first uh, Sabbath of 2010. Well, let's turn to Matthew 6.33 because our Savior gave us the ultimate spiritual goal. Matthew 6, verse 33. As I've pastored many churches, I would tell the churches there that the congregation, if you know one scripture, you should know Matthew 6.33. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So as you think about the kingdom of God, you can spend a lot of time meditating on what is the kingdom of God, what will be your role in the kingdom of God in the future, and his righteousness. What is God's righteousness, and how is it applied to your life? Is it the world's righteousness that you're seeking, where it says, oh, it's all right to do drugs, it's all ready to have sex before marriage. That's the world's righteousness. Well, the world's righteousness is not God's righteousness. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. All the benefits he was talking about, uh, clothes and food, all of those things that are necessities. Therefore, verse 34, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Christ gives us a way of thinking. Two weeks ago, I shared with you the story of Rodin's famous sculpture, The Thinker. It was supposed to depict Dante before the gates of hell, meditating on his poem. Uh, my wife even gave me bookends of this famous sculpture, The Thinker. And I read to you, and I'll just quote uh, again by way of review, Mr. Armstrong's comment about Rodin's sculpture, The Thinker, from Mystery of the Ages, page 11. But The Thinker had nothing to think from. No foundation for his thinking. No facts on which to base his conjectures. His human mind is not equipped to manufacture truth with no basis for that truth. However few, it seems, really think. Well, there are philosophers who think, but they think without the basis of truth. The uh, Foreign Policy magazine uh, for December 2010 recently listed their selection of the top 100 thinkers in the world. Foreign policy, quote, foreign policy presents a unique portrait of 2010's global marketplace of ideas and the thinkers who made them. Angela Merkel, Chancellor of Germany, was selected as number 10 for, quote, leading Europe through the recession with Teutonic resolve, end of quote. President Barack Obama was numbered was selected as the number three thinker of 2010, quote, for charting a course through criticism, end of quote. And who was number one for the great thinkers of 2010? Bill Gates and Warren Buffett were chosen as number one, quote, for stepping up as the world's states falter. So they step up as the world states are faltering. Why? for willing to donate billions of dollars for charity. They are, quote, on a mission to create a global club of great givers for charity, end of quote. So for a certain degree, they're practicing Acts 20, verse 35. It's more blessed to give 
than to receive, or as the Moffat translation has it, to give is happier than to get. So frankly, brethren, God has called us to be the world's greatest thinkers. Why? Because we are training to teach the world, and we're training to teach the top 100 thinkers in the world. And we're going to teach them how to think God's way. Let's turn to Philippians, the second chapter, Philippians 2. God has given us the awesome gift of mind power. Animals do not have that awesome gift. He wants us to think with wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. He wants us to think the way he thinks. And so we've read this several times, but it's very important as we think about our growing in the knowledge and grace of Christ in 2011 to develop our minds and to learn to think the way God thinks. Philippians 2, verse 5, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. What was the major thought of that mind? Who being in form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made of himself no reputation, or as the margin has here, emptied himself of his privileges, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. So he, the mind of Christ, is one of being a servant, of being a bond servant. Christ came to serve and to give. So when you think God's way, you think about helping, you think about serving, you think about giving and caring without going concerned. You think, what is the best, my friend, and for my family? And sometimes it requires tough love to help someone overcome a sinful habit, for example. Uh, Dr. Jeff Fall, in his booklet, Successful Parenting God's Way, describes the application of unconditional love in his booklet. So we need tough love. We need unconditional love. Two weeks ago, I gave a sermon titled, Practicing, uh, Practice Godly Meditation. So today's sermon is the second in the series of two. Today's sermon continues the theme of godly meditation and godly thinking. So today's sermon is titled, Practice Godly Thinking. Let's first consider the kind of thinking we need to change. We are influenced by the way the world thinks. We have to be honest with ourselves. How many of our thoughts are carnal or worldly? You know, I think sometimes I get caught up in a football game. You know, you think, they go, get them, get them. You know, you, you, you almost get into the mood and the feeling of, of the worldly moods and, and thoughts. How many of our thoughts are godly? How many of our thoughts are ungodly? I mentioned to you last time from the book Quick Fixes for Everyday Fears, a book by Michael Clarkson, a quote from page 5, about the kinds of thoughts, the numbers of thoughts. One study showed that the average quote, the average person has 66,000 thoughts per day, two-thirds of them negative. What percentage of your thoughts are negative? The University of Wisconsin research shows that of the things people worry about, 40% are about things that never occur, 30% are about things from the past, 12% are needless concerns about health, 10% are petty and miscellaneous cares, and only 8% are legitimate concerns. In other words, most worry is wasted, even counterproductive energy, end of quote. 
Jesus said, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. But what are the fruits and the results of ungodly thinking? Socrates and Plato are considered some of the world's greatest philosophers and thinkers. But one heresy they taught was that humans have an immortal soul trapped in a physical body. And that heresy is still taught today in mainstream professing Christianity. Ungodly meditation, ungodly thinking can learn, can lead to horrible myths and deceptive doctrines. Let's turn back to Romans 1 and verse 20. Are we thinking godly thoughts? We need to again take a look at the reality of today's world. And we know the evils and the wickedness that are plaguing nations in Africa and uh, South America and around the world with uh, violence and all other kinds of evil. Romans 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The atheists and agnostics are without excuse. You know, I think I mentioned to you the old cartoon that was back in 19... 65, when Time Magazine had this dramatic cover, all black with red letters, Is God Dead? Question mark. Because at that time, the uh, philosophy of uh, Friedrich Nietzsche was uh, prominent and being discussed around the nation. But there was a cartoon in uh, the Cincinnati uh, Observer where we were living at the time, and of course uh, it showed that... Uh, Uh, Nietzsche is shaking his fist and saying, God is dead. The next uh, cartoon shows the grave of Nietzsche and a voice from heaven saying, Nietzsche is dead and God is alive. So Nietzsche's going to have some comeuppance when he comes up in the white throne judgment and and, uh, God and say, what was that you were saying, Friedrich, about me? And not only him, but uh, many of the atheists of today that have that attitude. They have no excuse, because although they they knew God, verse 21, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. God had given the gift of mind power, and yet they've misused their thinking power, their meditative power. Some have intellectual arrogance. And again, you can uh, listen to the sermons on evolution and revelation, uh, number 599 and number 603. Atheists and evolutionists deny the greatest reality of all. They deny the existence of the spiritual dimension, and they deny the Creator who gave them their minds to think. Turn to 1 Corinthians, the third chapter, as we think about the fruits of ungodly thinking. 1 Corinthians, the third chapter, and verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. In other words, this vanity of intellect. You've got to humble yourself and choose to fear God if you want to think straight. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. 
And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. They are vain. They aren't going to produce good fruit at all. As the King James Version has, they are vain. As the NASB has, they are useless. The Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. Let's take a look at one other major historic event that led to disaster because of human thinking. Genesis 6 and verse 5. The wrong kind of thinking. Genesis 6 and verse 5. Then the Eternal saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What an incredible indictment, incredible historical news commentary on the condition and state of the human mind and behavior. That every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Eternal was sorry that he had made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. So the Eternal said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Take a look at John, the 10th chapter. We contrast the matter of evil thinking with godly thinking. John, the 10th chapter. Of course, you know the rest of the story in John 10.10. I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. And, uh, you know, every once in a while, on your digital clock, it'll be 10.10. And I always think if it's 10.10 in the evening or 10.10 in the morning, I always think of John 10.10. That Christ came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. But notice the contrast in the first part of the verse. John 10. And verse 10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's the way of carnal thinking. That's the way of worldly thinking. But Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So godly thinking is quite contrasted to the carnal thinking. Verse 11 Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. We're thankful for our good shepherd, and we'll be thinking more about that around April when we look forward to Passover time. Let's turn to Luke, the 21st chapter, Luke 21. You know, brethren, negative thinking can shorten your life. You know, there is the matter of depression. Of course, there are the matter of the chemicals in the brain. It happened, I think I've mentioned to you before, the book on Don't Let Jerks Get the Best of You, where Dr. Myers and his clinics have found over a period of time that people who carry uh, a grudge against someone will not let go of that grudge are depressed. But in clinical counseling with people who are in that state, once they are able to forgive and to let go, Actually, serotonin begins to flow in the brain, and they are able to overcome that depression. I think the title of the book, Don't Let Jerks Get the Best of You. But uh, anyway, as we heard in the uh, sermonette, we need to be able to forgive and to do it with, uh, from the heart and to let go of those grudges that we have towards others and pray for our enemies and do good to those that despitefully use us and 
and persecute us. Luke 21 and verse 25 shows that fears, anxieties can affect your health. Luke 21 and verse 25. And Jesus talks about his coming and the signs preceding his coming. And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, in the stars, and on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, tsunamis, as we've seen. But notice this, verse 26, men's hearts failing them from fear. Many heart attacks is the stress and the anxiety and the traumatic events that happen all over the world. People will be dying of fear. What about you? What about me? The rest of the verse goes on to say, well, and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Verse 28 is the positive thinking versus the fearful, anxious thinking. Now when these things happen, begin, begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws nigh or draws near. So we have an attitude of faith or do we have an attitude of fear? Negative attitudes can shorten your life. Positive attitudes can lengthen your life. And of course, we observed the uh, funeral service of Mr. D. Partian last weekend, and he is an example of a positive attitude. He lived till age 94. The Apostle Paul called one of the Ten Commandments the commandment with promise. Who knows which of the ten is the commandment of promise? I wonder if any of our uh, children, uh, I won't call on you, your children, but I think you know which one is the commandment with promise. The answer, let's go to Ephesians, the sixth chapter. Ephesians 6. And what is that promise? We're talking about attitudes and thinking that can affect your health and longevity in life. Ephesians 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. And what is that promise? That it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. So God promises, if you've got a good attitude, if you're following his way, his life, there is a promise of long life. Positive attitudes and thinking can lengthen your life. Let's take a look at another contrast between worldly thinking and godly thinking. Of course, one of the most fundamental of all, Isaiah 55, verse 8. Isaiah 55 and verse 8. Isaiah 55 and verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is God speaking. Nor are my ways your ways, says the Eternal. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Are our thoughts anywhere near the way God thinks? How can we think the thoughts of God? How can we think godly thoughts? Well, he tells us in verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts... And let him return to the eternal, and he will have mercy to, upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. 
So we can think God's thoughts as we repent. We ask his forgiveness. In fact, the word repent in the Greek is metanoia, which means a change of thinking. And we need to have that change of thinking if we haven't done it already. Let's turn to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. We have to think God's way. Are you learning to think God's way? Of course, meditation, which I emphasized in the previous sermon, when we're thinking about God's word, we can. Psalm 1 and verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. There are those who walk in the counsel of the ungodly. They have friends that are fools and give them foolish advice, nor stands in the path of sinners, those who are practicing sin, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, the self-appointed critics. We have some in the church that need to repent of that kind of attitude. They're scornful. But his delight, that is the man who is blessed, is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. And he's going to be fruitful, as it explains in verse 3. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in a season. Its leaf, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. One of the benefits of meditation. God is going to bless you. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. You know, the idea of sifting the wheat and uh, separating the chaff from the wheat. And the wind blows the chaff away. The ungodly are like that, or like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the eternal knows the way of the righteous. Christianity is a way of life. It's what you do 24-7, what you think 24-7. But the way of the ungodly shall perish. Well, we need to think the way God thinks. And again, how many of you have taken time this past week to think, to take a little time to meditate, to think about the deeper issues in life? And I often, sometimes, I, I shouldn't tell our staff here, but I might go down the, take a break here, have my cup of coffee, go down the stairs and sit on the stairs uh, outside just uh, where no one's around. Of course, uh, looking over at the plumbing building over there, but I see birds flying around the trees and sip that coffee and, and think. And it's just taking a, a break in the middle of the day. It's very inspiring, comforting. And it gives you that little release of stress that sometimes builds up during the day. Why is godly meditation so vital and why is it so important? Because God wants us to think the way he thinks. There's an old axiom, you are what you eat, but you are also what you think. Let's turn to Proverbs 23, 7. Proverbs 23 and verse 7. I think I may have shared this quote with you before, but maybe not. But uh, God has given us the mind power to meditate and to think. Henry Ford made this comment about thinking. He said, thinking is the hardest work there is, which is the probable reason why so few engage in it. And uh, that's true. I, I, I know sometimes it's, it can be very hard thinking, particularly if you're a college student and you're studying, as I was, for a physics exam, 
I remember studying so hard one time that in my dreams I was solving all the problems in the world that I couldn't solve consciously. But subconsciously I could solve all those problems. Thinking is hard work. Proverbs 23.7. It says, uh, For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. And so the, the idea is here, there may be someone trying to deceive you, but the, the deeper point is, as he thinks, so is he. What determines who you are and what your character is? You know, you, who are you? What determines who you are? What you think, what your character is, what your heart is. Mr. Rod McNair pointed to uh, Dr. Douglas Winnale's commentary in the Church Bulletin and the World Ahead, How Pure Is Your Heart? And as he said, or Where Is Your Heart was the title of the, the commentary, uh, Dr. Winnale wrote, Regarding priorities, Jesus taught, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6.21 Jesus' time, talents, and energies were totally committed to his mission. His heart was in the work of God. Let's regularly examine our priorities and ask ourselves, where is our heart? Now, the heart is symbolic for who and what you are. It's your character, your mind, your way of life, the predictability of your behaviors and reactions to events in life. And uh, Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Again, I'll recommend sermon number 49, how pure is your heart? You know, King Solomon shared the lessons of vanity in the book of Ecclesiastes. He said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 2. Do we live and think with vanity? What is vanity? Vanity is anything that is not lasting. The modern application of vanity is selfish, egotistical thinking, and living. But the biblical vanity is anything that is not lasting. So ask as you live your daily life, your sporting activities, will this movie, will this television show, will this texting, will this post on Facebook add to godly character? Or will it detract from my character? Will this action, this thought, develop godly character that will last forever? I've told you that example before, but in essence, if we define vanity as something that isn't lasting, this lectern is vanity because it isn't going to last. It's going to disappear. However, if it is used in God's honor and to his glory to promote godly thinking, godly character, and to promote his plan of salvation, then this lectern is not being used in vain. And, of course, we can wear clothes in vain, if we're trying to promote ourselves. But if we're honoring God in our clothing and in our appearance, then it is not in vain. What is your character? Your character defines who you are. I recommend sermon number 401, Lasting Values, and sermon number 449, The Importance of Character, by Dr. Meredith. Now, the Apostle Paul gave us one of the greatest challenges in using our minds. And it is a tremendous challenge, and you wonder, really, can I actually fulfill this instruction? 
Is it possible? 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 4 is that challenge. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 4. We battle a spiritual battle. He talks about that in Ephesians 6. The weapons of our warfare are not physical, but they're spiritual. We have to put on the armor of God, the spiritual armor. We have to, part of that is the helmet of salvation, where your mind is, where you think. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or physical or fleshly, but mighty in God for pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Listen to this, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That is an incredible challenge, but it's God's instruction to us to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So we have to think, what kind of thoughts do we have? Well, we'll examine and clarify some of those thoughts as time goes on. But we can. We can bring every thought into the obedience of Christ. If we discipline our minds to think the way God thinks, if we fill our minds with God's truth and the Holy Spirit. In the LCN March-April 2011, which uh, you'll receive in a couple months or a month or so, Dr. Meredith's uh, letter to the brethren, our surrender to Jesus Christ, pages 1 and 2, he states this, quote, How many of us cry out to God as we study? Teach me your ways, O God, and lead me in your paths. How many of us try to regularly meditate on God's word, on his law, and on his plan, and try to truly inculcate the very mind of Christ in this way, and to reflect Christ's minds in everything, Christ's mind in everything we think, say, and do? Do we try to reflect Christ's mind in everything we think, say, and do? He continues, Remember, Jesus inspired the Apostle Paul to write to write us, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2, verse 5. That will be in the upcoming March-April LCN 2011, our surrender to Jesus Christ, preparing and thinking of the upcoming Passover. Do you really want the mind of Christ? Do you really want to think God's thoughts? Albert Einstein, the famous physicist and Nobel Prize winner, was quoted as saying, I want to know God's thoughts. The rest are details. And Dr. Meredith wrote in the May-June Tomorrow's World uh, magazine, 2007, the key to spiritual growth in our hurried, mixed-up, distracted lives, We often fail to find time or take time to think about what is really important. Sometimes at the funeral of a dear friend or loved one, we may pause to realize how quickly the hustle and bustle of our daily lives could end. We may quietly think and meditate on the real issues of life. Why are we here? What is the real purpose of our lives? How should we fulfill that great purpose? So godly thinking, godly meditation, medication, it is a medication as well, is vital. We all need to practice godly meditation and godly thinking. 
In the other sermon, I covered briefly what meditation is. As my wife said, deep thought about a subject with God's guidance for a deeper understanding of truth on a subject. Or as the dictionary definition, meditation is profound and generally peaceful consideration of truths that are thought to have great importance in ordering or living one's life. Now, one way of inculcating God's thinking, of course, is to internalize the Bible. And one way of Bible study is to do a topical study. Let me just give you an example of that. Let's start with Psalm 1, for example. If you're going to do a chain, how many of you, by the way, actually do have a chain reference in your Bible? That is, you have a topic, and you start with one scripture, put a marginal reference to the next scripture on the topic, and then another marginal reference and onward. How many of you have a chain in your Bible? Oh, good. Actually, wonderful. That's 12.7% of you have a chain reference in your Bible. Let's start with Psalm 1. We're looking up the topic of meditation or meditate, all right? So Psalm 1, verse 2, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. The margin says ponders by talking to himself. Can you talk to yourself? You're not crazy if you do. You're, You're actually thinking and logically reasoning. Now, I've just highlighted these. Just turn over the page to Psalm 4, verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Or as the King James has it, commune with your own heart. And then uh, Psalm 5, verse 1. I've just put a a blue highlighter on the word meditation or meditation, so I, I don't even need to put a marginal reference. I just turn the page here. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray. And then, uh, of course, the classic question in Psalm 8, when David was out there thinking of the deeper questions of life, when I consider your heaven, Psalm 8, verse 3, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained. And then that fundamental question, which I hope every one of you can answer. If you haven't, you need to give it deep thought. What is man that you are mindful of him? Well, man is created in God's image and his likeness. And he's to be born into his family if he follows God's invitation and way of life through Christ to overcome and to receive the gift of eternal life. What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you've made him a little lower than the angels and have crowned him with glory and honor. Turn over to... uh, Chapter 19, uh, Psalm, sorry, Psalm 19, and verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. That's the scripture we completed the uh, last sermon on with that very theme. We need to pray for that gift that God does give us of his thoughts. Let's turn over to one more. I, uh, find one. Psalm 49, verse 3. I had to put a marginal reference there. 49, verse 3. My mouth shall speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. So you can think God's way as you study a particular topic, 
and even put a chain in your Bible. Just get Cruden's Concordance, or if you are online, of course, there are many uh, concordances online that you can use. I've encouraged you, of course, to know your Bible. And uh, I know our students or children are learning uh, by memory the Ten Commandments. And I hope all of you know the Ten Commandments, either by either the long form or at least the short form. And we already saw the first commandment with promise as the fifth commandment. But Jesus said many times, he said, uh, the challenge to the Pharisees and Sadducees, have you not read? That's five times that expression occurs in the New Testament. Once in Mark uh, 10, uh, 12 and verse 10, have you not even read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And in Luke 6, in verse 3, Jesus said to the Pharisees, Have you not even read this? So, how are you going to remember? What did Jesus do when he was tempted by Satan? When Satan put into Jesus the most blasphemous thoughts you could ever think. Now, Jesus didn't... He processed it to the point where he gave in to the temptation. When Satan said... Bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all these kingdoms. Can you think of a more blasphemous thought? But what did Jesus say? He said, as written, you shall worship the Lord, and him only shall you serve. He countered that evil thought with Scripture, with God's Word. And we have to think of the Scriptures that we can use to counter evil thoughts. I've told you about the times when I was tempted and blasphemous thoughts were coming into my mind, and the only way I could get those thoughts out of my mind was to memorize Philippians 4.8, and I kept quoting that. It's just like Mr. Armstrong talked about, how do you get air out of a bottle? You put water into the bottle and get the air out. You put something good into your mind to get something bad out of your mind. And I quoted Philippians 4.8, as I remembered back in when I was a bachelor there and a transportation engineer back in Norfolk and uh, staying there in Virginia Beach. You know, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of a good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things or meditate on these things. Let's turn to Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Memorizing Scripture will help you meditate. It will help you remember what you read. Ephesians, the fifth chapter. I memorized when I was in, I believe it was the 8th grade or 7th and 8th grade because we had, you know, you get a little star if you would memorize a, a certain uh, psalm. I memorized Psalm 1, Psalm 23, Psalm 100, and Psalm 121 when I was in the 8th grade. And um, I think it was the 8th grade. And uh, more recently, in my old age, I uh, memorized part of Psalm 103. Um, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is in me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all thy iniquities, who heals all thy diseases, who feeds thy mouth with, no, who, um, oopsie, anyway, who foods, feeds thy mouth with good things and renews your youth, so that your youth might be renewed like the eagles. I, I skipped one verse. But I didn't practice ahead of time. But uh, anyway, uh, you can still memorize. 
Ephesians 5, verse 15. And uh, here, as we were singing some of the hymns, how many hymns can you sing without, uh, without the hymnal? You've memorized it, but you didn't just memorize it, because the word memorize seems like you remember it for a temporary period, but you've got to internalize it, and it's a part of you. How many of you can tell me your Social Security number? Let me see your hands. Look at that. You've memorized something. Incredible. That's about 92% can tell us the Social Security number and your phone number, your address, your uh, email address, on and on and on. Yes, you can remember, even if you're old. Yes, you can. There, you know, there are the three laws of memorization. Uh, they are repetition, impression, and uh, I forget the third one. <laughs> the, the, the third one is association. So you can remember Ephesians 5, uh, verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, be not unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now notice this, verse 19. Speaking to one another in Psalms. So what do you do? You get your, open the Bible to Psalms. I'm going to speak to you in a Psalm. No, do you know the Psalm? Speaking to one another in Psalms and hymns. You know several hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you can speak to one of another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, but not if you don't know any. This is the latest uh, Christianity Today, uh, January 2011, Christianity Today, and uh, it's in an article on page 41, Changing forever how you think. Recovering the lost art of scripture memorization by John Wilson. He says, well, uh, scripture memorization is given a bad word like rote memory, rote learning. But he goes on to say, memorizing, we are told, discourages creativity, critical thinking, and conceptual understanding. The scorn is old. It doesn't seem to jibe with our everyday experience. After all, Training to be a doctor or a lawyer entails memorization, a lot of it. You have to learn 700 muscles and bones. You have to memorize them all. You have to know 700, at least. We don't foolishly assume that the creativity of actors or musicians is crushed by the formidable, formidable feats of memory their art demands. And why is Peyton Manning such a dazzling good quarterback? in part because he spends countless hours in the film room studying defenses, looking for patterns to memorize, so that in the midst of the action with a 290-pound lineman who runs like a cheetah and hits like a sledgehammer bearing down on him, he will make the optimal decision in a split second. So he has those, they have to memorize. You professionals, it's a part of internalizing knowledge that is going to help you to be a success. He goes on to say, the impact of most of what we memorize is not so dramatic as to change forever the way we think about the world. But it is real, and its consequences accumulate over time. Hence, the choices we make about what we put in our mind are of lasting importance. Memorization of Scripture, Dallas Willard writes, is one way of taking charge 
of the contents of our conscious thoughts and of the feelings, beliefs, and actions that depend on them. So again, brethren, I encourage you to know your Bible and to memorize Scripture and to learn hymns so that you can sing them and that you can think about them and that you can saturate your mind with the Word of God. Again, that's the quotable quote from uh, Dr. Meredith years ago in Big Sandy. Saturate your mind with the Word of God. And you do that, of course, by Bible study. And there are many ways of doing that. Let's turn to John 14, verse 26. John 14, one of the promises that Christ gives us in terms of memory. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom or which the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, John 14, 26, and bring to your remembrance all things I have said to you. If you're on your knees studying the Bible, underlining it, marking it, speaking it, thinking about it, sharing your comments with others, you will remember it. The more you meditate on Scripture, the more you'll internalize the principles, the wisdom, and the truth of God. I think some of you know about the Waldensians, and of course they didn't have Bibles to um, circulate among their families and children and congregations. And so what did they do? They taught their children to memorize whole chapters, I'm quoting here, so that whatever might befall the written copies of the Bible, large portions of it might be secure in the memories of their youths and maidens. So this is from a short history of the Italian Waldensians, Waldenses by Sophia Bompiani, and that's quoted in the Ambassador College Bible Correspondence Course, Lesson 51 on page 10. So here were children of the Waldenses who quoted, who learned whole chapters and whole books of the scriptures of the Bible. I haven't learned a whole book of the Bible. Uh, maybe um, one of you could memorize Philemon. That would be the shortest one. So maybe you could memorize that one. I don't know. But let's turn to John 15 and verse 7. Or John 16. Just turn back to John 15 and verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. How can his words abide in you unless you've internalized those words? You've thought about them. You've read them. You've underlined your Bible. You may perhaps have even memorized them. And so now that they are part of your very character and a part of what you are. So how can we think and grow and improve our thinking? What are some of the ways? There's a book on how successful people think by John C. Maxwell. He refers to the scriptures. I'll just quote from that book, uh, page XI. Quote, when you take time to learn how to change your thinking and become a better thinker, you are investing in yourself. Gold mines tap out. Stock markets crash. Real estate investments can go sour. But a human mind with the ability to think well is a diamond mine that never runs out. It's priceless. And so he encourages us to expose ourselves to good thinkers. And, of course, he refers to Proverbs 13, uh, 21, or Proverbs uh, 14, 7. Um, 
If you want a sharp thinker, be around sharp people. Iron sharpens iron, so does man the countenance of his friends. That's Proverbs 27, 17. And that's one of the common scriptures in our spokesman club manual. Let's, let's take a look at a couple of those uh, scriptures. Proverbs 13, 20. Proverbs 13, 20. And again, it, it, throughout the book of Proverbs, it contrasts fools with wise. You've got to recognize who are fools and who are wise. Proverbs 13, 20. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. So you need to seek out wise men. Do you ask good questions of your parents? You ask good questions of your grandchildren or grandparents and your grandchildren for that matter. Do you ask good questions to your minister? Let's turn over to Proverbs 20, verse 5. Proverbs 20, verse 5. Counsel in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. In other words, if you're a grandchild, you know that your grandfather or grandmother has had a tremendous amount of experience and wisdom. And if you can ask good questions, you can draw out that wisdom from your grandfather or your grandmother, or your father or your mother, or from a minister. And I know it's uh, encouraging to me when I'm with a, a college student or someone, and that individual will start asking basic questions, fundamental questions about doctrine, or about uh, the history of the church, or uh, something about scripture. A person who has wisdom can draw out the experience and the knowledge and the wisdom from someone else. But how many of you do that? How many of you take advantage of that? I, my uh, cousin's daughter um, had an assignment, I think it was at school, to interview her grandfather, my uncle, Bob Hayes. And uh, she had this long list of questions. Uh, grandfather, uh, what was it? Uh, what was the cost of a, a loaf of bread when you were a boy? And she recorded this on tape recording. And she asked, "Well, Grandfather, you uh, played uh, an instrument in the army. What uh, what instrument did you play?" And then, Grandfather, I understand you had some uh, orange trees uh, on your farm. And uh, yes, he had 365 apple trees on the farm. That was where my mother lived, and I never knew that until he died, and then my cousin took that interview, transcribed it, and sent it out with the condolences or that a response to the condolences. And it was quite an honor to my uncle to understand here's some history of his life that was drawn out by an interview from his granddaughter. And so what does it say here? Again, in Proverbs 20, in verse 5, Counsel in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. And that's why Dr. Meredith has a council of elders, men with difference in experience and different training and background. And again, that spokesman club scripture is, Iron sharpens iron, so does man the countenance of his friend, Proverbs 27, 7. So how else can we grow in godly thinking? Well, we think, we seek true knowledge, and of course that's the Bible study course, 
uh, your own Bible study. And then, of course, on uh, Living University, I'll just uh, give you this report from Living University of our first semester this last year, uh, fall semester 2010. More than 100 of tomorrow's World Bible Study Course students who completed the 24-lesson course accepted Dr. Meredith's invitation to enroll tuition-free in his Living University semester course, Theology 135, Life, Ministry, and Teachings of Jesus. An online student from South Australia comments, I have found this class extremely beneficial as it has increased my understanding of the Gospels and also the person of Jesus Christ. How else can we improve our thinking? We can improve our thinking, of course, by committing ourselves to think positive thoughts. I've already quoted Philippians 4 and verse 8, where it says we need to meditate on these things, those things that are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of a good report. And perhaps you should review the sermons by Dr. Meredith and D. Bar Partian, sermon number 134, Hope and Positive Thinking by Dr. Meredith, and a more recent sermon, number 506, Are You Positive? by Mr. D. Bar Apartian. Again, I encourage you to hear those sermons. They're available, of course, on the COGL and the LCG website under sermons. Well, if you practice positive thinking, you will keep the two great commandments, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And I'll refer you to Sermon 540, Love God with All Your Mind. How else can we grow in godly thinking. Well, of course, we already saw to think about God's law. We covered that aspect in the uh, previous sermon. But we also need to count our blessings to write down things that we're thankful for. Uh, One minister's wife who had been going through quite a few trials told me that she had written down five things a day, every day for the past few years, and she had come up to 2,500 things that she'd written down as being thankful for. We already read in Philippians 5.18, to giving thanks always for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I wrote a poem, I venture to share this with you, a brief prayer of thanks that I wrote down April 9th, 1999. Thank you for the trees and the breeze. Thank you for the wind and the mind. Thank you for your mercy and being so kind. Thank you for life and victory over strife. Thank you for Christ, who is our life. And for promises from above, we look forward to eternity with you in glorious love. So we can think God's thoughts as we are expressing gratitude. In fact, Mr. Meredith's sermon on Thanksgiving weekend was titled, Gratitude. We should also think about God's statutes, and I shared those with you from the LCN September-October issue, Build Now for Your Future. And we need to think about God's work. I already mentioned about God TV starting tomorrow and the St. Louis Station starting tomorrow. And the Bible study course, which reaches 133 uh, countries, that's the online edition, including Afghanistan, China, India, Iceland, Japan, Nigeria, South Korea, uh, United Arab Arab Emirates. And the last one that's joined the online Bible study course is Uruguay. 
And again, uh, we will continue to pray for the semi-annual letter response. We heard of the excellent response in the announcements, over 35,000 that have come in. So thank you for your prayers and support of that. What else should we pray for? Matthew 9. We turn to Matthew, the ninth chapter, as we meditate on God's work, on his law, on those things for which we can be thankful. Matthew 9 and verse 37. Matthew 9. Verse 37. Then he said to the disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And we thank God for the 24% increase in attendance here in Charlotte. We still need to pray for more laborers to go into the harvest, more co workers, donors, ministers, members, and laborers. So keep praying that. That's part of the thinking that God has given us. He's also given us a mind to think creatively. Dr. Meredith has often referred to the human mind and the gift of creative imagination that God has given to man. So do you think creatively? Remember, when you do, you need to have a basis in God's truth. But are you using your God-given gift of creativity? One aspect, of course, is to hear and see and understand excellence in life. That is, to meditate on these things, as we saw in Philippians 4.8. On the other hand, we may miss valuable excellence in our life as we pass by. There was an experiment conducted by the Washington Post in Washington, D.C. They put uh, one of the fa- excuse me, famous violinists in a metro station in Washington, D.C. It was a January morning during the rush hour in 2007. He performed on the violin six Bach pieces for about 45 minutes. And in that time, uh, 1,907 people passed by. The Washington Post reporters just meticulously investigated every aspect of the social experiment. And uh, people were just rushed by. Here was this man of four minutes. A violinist received his first dollar. He dressed in casual clothes so he wouldn't be recognized, put out a hat with some money in it so people could contribute to him as he played the violin. Actually, you can see this on, uh, I just watched it uh, last night. You can go to the Washington Post and put in Joshua Bell. And uh, you can see the video of his performing. And it was actually resonant because it was uh, echoing. But here are these people just on their rush to get to the train station, rushing by this famous violinist, and every once in a while maybe putting a dollar or or some coins in. At six minutes, a young man leaned against the wall to listen to him, then looked at his watch and started to walk again. At ten minutes, a three-year-old boy stopped, but his mother tugged him hurriedly. The kid stopped to look at the violinist again, but the mother pushed hard, and the child continued to walk turning his head the whole time. He wanted to see this special performance. This action was repeated by several other children. The musician played continuously. Only six people stopped and listened for a short while. About 20 gave money, but continued to walk at their normal pace. The man collected a total of $32. He finished playing, and silence took over. No one knew this, but the violinist was Joshua Bell, one of the greatest musicians in the world. He played one of the most intricate pieces ever written, the Chocan, was it? Chacon. Um, 
with a violin worth $3.5 million. Two days before, Joshua Bell sold out a theater in Boston where the seats averaged $100 each to sit and listen to him play the same music. Well, it's a true story, and uh, only one woman recognized him. You can see it in the video, and she just plants before him the last few minutes watching him and then goes up to him and said, I, I listened to you just a week ago at your free concert at the Library of Congress. And she puts a $20 bill in the, in the big pocket. The, the, so the questions were raised, in a commonplace environment, in an appropriate, inappropriate hour, do we perceive beauty? If so, do we stop to appreciate it? Do we recognize talent in an unexpected context? One possible conclusion reached from this experiment could be this. If we do not have a moment to stop and listen to one of the best musicians in the world playing some of the finest music ever written with one of the most beautiful instruments ever made, how many other things are we missing as we rush through life? So we need to be a little alert, perceptive of the excellence and the beauty that God has put in this world. That's why Mr. Armstrong had AICF, where he promoted the excellence in the fine arts at Ambassador auditorium. But God has given us creative imagination, and that's an incredible gift from God. Again, I like to write poetry, and I'll just share one other uh, with you. I, in the eighth grade, I had an art class, and uh, I was supposed to design a shirt. I, I designed a short sleeve shirt with all different kinds of yellow and blue, and I had lightning bolts on the, on the shirt. And that would have been, I can't think, 15 to about 59 years ago, whatever. And more recently, I saw a shirt just like that I had designed <laughs> when I was in the eighth grade years ago. So you can be creative. Uh, when my mother turned 85, I wrote a poem to her, January 25th, 1995. She turned 85 on January 28th, 1995. Mom, you've been so kind to us, your generosity flows. Your courage and cheerful positiveness is something everyone knows. I'll always remember your rocking me when childhood fears came near. You comforted and reassured till I felt calm, secure, and clear. You've helped your husband, children, friends. You gave peace in human relations. At work, at play, and family time, you could teach the United Nations. And now you've reached a milestone great to smile at 85. Honor, joy, and peace to you. You're the greatest mom alive. Enjoy it. I think about that back then. But we have creative, we have creative imagination, and God gives us that gift. How else can we grow and change and use the gift of godly thinking? I saw a television program recently, uh, you may have seen it, called The Biggest Loser. There were three finalists who worked for months to lose weight, and the one who would lose the greatest percentage of weight would win $250,000. The man who won had a wife and children. He went from 400 pounds down to 219 pounds in seven weeks. He had lost 181 pounds, or 45% of his original weight. So he won the $250,000. He was dedicated. Are we as dedicated to our spiritual goals? So we need to visualize the future. Turn to Revelation, the 21st chapter. 
course, the Feast of Tabernacles gave us vision of the future. We had a foretaste of tomorrow's world, the world tomorrow. But we need to think about the future as well. Revelation, the 21st chapter. Christ pronounces a blessing, of course, in in chapter 1. For those who read and who retain what is written in the book of Revelation. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So God is going to bring down the new Jerusalem. God the Father will be here. He describes the city here, verse 9 through 21, about the 12 gates and the different pearls and jewels and precious stones. Verse 9 Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. It is called the bride's... the the bride, the Lamb's wife. Who is going to live in the New Jerusalem? Those who are in the first resurrection. And of course, those who are uh, not in the first resurrection will be bringing in their glory into the city gates, as it says later on here in the Scriptures. Verse uh, 20-25, And its gates shall not be shut at all by day, and there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. So again, God is going to give us that awesome and glorious future. And of course, we eventually inherit the whole earth. What are God's thoughts? We're going to think like God. He gives us this encouraging scripture. We've read it before, but let's read it again. Jeremiah 29. This inspiring way of God's thinking. And he wants to reassure us of his love and his kindness and his promises to us. Again, when you want to think God's thoughts, think about the promises God gives us. Mr. Lee gave a sermon on God's promises here a few weeks ago. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I have driven you, says the Eternal. And I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. But that's God's thinking. He has thoughts of peace and not of evil. Thoughts to give us a future and a hope. Well, God has given us his thoughts. He's shared with us his thoughts. God has even shared with us the very prayer 
of Jesus the night before he was crucified. He shared with us his mind, his plans, his promises. And the Bible, of course, gives 6,000 years of, well, 4,000 years of experience up to the time of, of Christ and a little beyond of man's history of failure, man's history of successes as God helped people. As you think God's thoughts, you can have perfect peace of mind. Really? You can have perfect peace of mind? Is that in the Bible anywhere? Isaiah 26 and verse 3. Isaiah 26. I remember the first time I heard this, the minister was expounding it and how his wife had slammed the car door on his leg and he had to think of this verse. Isaiah 26 and verse 3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. When you think about God, you think about the throne of God, Revelation, the fourth chapter with the sea of glass and the four living creatures, the 24 elders, the innumerable company of angels, of course the rainbow about God's throne and the lightning and the thunder. No, you think about God. He promises to give you perfect peace of mind. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Let's think about God's creation and his law of love. As it says in Romans 13.10, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Let's turn finally to Psalm 19 again. This week, brethren, let's meditate on God's Word. Let's meditate on His work and how you can support and further that work in your own life. God has called us the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And He's called us to a glorious future and an incredible ultimate destiny. So think about that coming kingdom and the promises that God has given you. Let's follow the example of Christ Remember what we read before in 2 Corinthians 10.5 that we need to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So let's practice godly meditation and godly thinking. In 2011, let's continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let's continue to pray the prayer of King David, Psalm 19 and verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Let's practice godly meditation and godly thinking.